the idea that Placemark is a business is really intertwined with the idea that I want to continue working on it for the long term and I want to continue making it better. And, you know, even though in my heart of hearts, I still still believe in open source, there wasn't really a scenario in which it could be fully open source and, you know, something that I would work on long term. You know, I'm unfortunately not, you know, a Renaissance prince or anything like that. And I also live in America, which is kind of more like a Mad Max situation than you can in other countries, I guess. I couldn't get a grant. Welcome to another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. My name is Daniel and this is a podcast for the geospatial community. My guest on the show today is Tom McWright. And Tom is building something called Placemark. So if I describe Placemark as a fast and powerful way to edit geospatial data, you might think, hey, don't we already have one of those? How is this different from everything else that's out there already? And I think that's a really great question. So Tom's going to walk us through it, how it is different, where he sees his competitive advantage, why he thinks this project, this business that he's building could be a success. He's also, he's also going to tell us why now is the right time for him to start a business and why he chose this kind of business. So part of the reason why I want to share Tom's story with you is because Tom, Tom isn't raising venture capital. He hasn't got a huge team behind him. He's doing this by himself. And not that there's anything wrong with having a big team or, or raising money to start a business. That, that's not what I'm saying. But I think the fact that Tom is doing this by himself, I think it just makes the whole thing more approachable. So maybe you'll listen to this and see, wow, okay, there's someone like me. People like us can do things like this. And hopefully that'll be inspirational for you. And you'll realize that you could just start. You don't need to build a team first. You don't need to raise money. You, you could just start if you wanted to. And of course, this is true for whatever idea you have. You don't necessarily have to be building a business. Hey, Tom, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for doing this with me. You've gotten up early in the morning and I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, no worries. So you're building something really interesting. You're building something called Placemark and you've built something called geogison.o. And those are the things I want to talk about in a little bit more detail very soon. But first, maybe you could introduce yourself. Would you mind telling the listeners who you are and how you got in, involved in, in geospatial? Yeah, sure. So yeah, as you as you mentioned, I'm Tom McWright. And I got into geospatial kind of in a, I don't know if it, there really is a conventional way, but I would say kind of an unconventional way. In college, I built a, a map, an indoor map of our extremely cavernous library called the Swim Signal, which is actually still online. You can like put little glasses where you were in the basement of the library. And that's kind of how I landed my first job, which was at Development Seed, which is the company that kind of split off and then became Mapbox. And so uh, really the, the very start of my career was building stuff that kind of became Mapbox from two years out of college. And I was there for eight, eight and a half years and kind of discovered that I was into maps at that point, I guess a little bit late. <laughs> um, but on the other hand, you know, I've discovered that I've been into a lot of things. You kind of learn to love the subject area. Yeah, I think it happens with expertise too. I think, you know, the more expert you become in a certain subject area, the more you enjoy it, perhaps the more opportunities you see in it. Yeah, yeah. And the geospatial world is just so big and it's just a, a mountain that you'll never really climb. And it's really intimately com connected to creative tools, which is also just, I think, something that I have always enjoyed working on. And so when we've been working on like Mapbox Studio and in the last couple 
years, I've worked on a product called Observable, which was doing visualizations. And then I worked on a CAD project. And as long as I'm kind of working on something that allows people to create something and being in that kind of uh, position of trying to build software that somebody will use all day long and, you know, something that actually helps people with their careers and with their creative works, that's, you know, that's where I want to be. Yeah, that, that, that makes perfect sense to, to me. So you talked about college there. Um, I just want to dive into that for a second. Do you have any sort of official university formal education in spatial analysis, uh, spatial thinking, geography, that, that kind of thing? I took one, one GIS class in college, but I graduated with a major in computer science and a minor in religious studies. <laughs> so that probably doesn't qualify as, as proper geo knowledge. And a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of the GIS concepts that I know I tried to learn outside of college. And I'm sure that there are lots of very high-end GIS people who, who would say that I'm still learning them. Do you, do you think that's still possible to learn it on the job? I mean, I think so. I've learned almost everything on the job. I am not the kind of person who enjoys classes. I mean, I did fine in, in college, no complaints. It was a really fun time. But I think everything, you can learn it in college formally, but at least for me, the only way that I really feel like I know something is when I've really used that knowledge and kind of internalized it. And that just goes for everything that I learned. Even though I learned a lot of computer science ideas in college, I didn't really feel like I learned them until, you know, four years later when I had implemented them three times and figured out why the, why the theory works. Yeah, I, I think the key word there is perhaps learning. And so, like you were saying, a lot of people learn in a lot of different ways. And as long as learning happens, does it really matter where it happens? I mean, in my opinion, no. Yeah, but that's kind of self-serving because I, I enjoy working in a lot of fields in which I, I don't have the proper qualifications. I guess geo is, geo is one of those. But yeah, I mean, everyone's, everyone's learning style is different. And I think that I also have friends who have masters in GIS-related fields, and they've certainly learned a lot of stuff that would take me a lifetime to, to master. Yeah, so I have a formal education in uh, GIS and, and remote sensing. And sometimes I can feel myself wanting to defend that and say, well, this is the only way. A part of me thinks that it's not the only way, of course, but like I, I know it, I understand it. If I see someone's qualifications and it says master's there, you know, I have a good idea of what they've been through because I've been through that same process myself. But you know, more and more I'm forced to realize and forced to understand that, that, that that's not the only way. There is a bunch of different ways of, of learning anything and that development does, doesn't stop when you leave university, when you leave college, it's, it should be a lifetime thing. And that's driven by interest, I think, in a subject, wanting to know it, wanting to understand, wanting to try something new. Yeah. And also I come at most of these things from the, from the side of somebody who's trying to create tools for them, which doesn't necessarily mean that when I'm creating a tool for cartography or for editing data, it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to be as intelligent as, uh, you know, Cynthia Brewer in terms of color schemes or the people who design the maps at the New York Times. And for those positions, I do hope those people have a formal education. You know, if I'm going to buy a house, I'm going to buy a house from, uh, you know, somebody who actually went to engineering school and can make sure that it doesn't fall down. <laughs> there are lots of things for which expertise really does, uh, does work. Totally. It's, it's interesting that we say that and I can, you know, sit over here on the other side of the world and nod and agree with you. But when it comes to programming, 
I think, which can have a massive impact on the way you see the world, the information you get back, how you share things with others, how you communicate. For some reason, it seems to matter less because I can't see it. It's not like a, a physical thing that I can touch. But yeah, I would really like to think that people have a really good understanding. The people that are writing the code that is changing our world, I'd really like to think that they take that responsibility seriously and have a really good understanding, a deep understanding of, of what they're doing and the consequences of it. So, so we've talked a little bit about these tools that you like to create. You say this again and again, tools and creation. The first tool that I can see that, that I'm aware of anyway that you've made is something called geogison.io. I want to talk about that first, and then I want to move on to what you're building at the moment, something called placemark.io. But let's start with geogison.io. What is it? I probably will mess up the chronology, but around, oh boy, maybe seven, eight years ago, time passes. Around seven or eight years ago, I remember just tweeting, it's pretty hard to just show GeoJSON on a map. And two or three days later, I had a little demo in which on the right-hand side of the screen, there was a text area. And on the left side of the screen, there was a map. And when you edited the GeoJSON on the right, the map would update. And when you dragged things around on the left, the GeoJSON would update. And that's basically all GeoJSON.io was for quite a while. It was this tool for really, really basic map editing on the web with zero bells and whistles, no analytics, no user friendliness whatsoever. And this was kind of something that I did as a side project at Mapbox and just to scratch my own itch. And I think it was, it has been enduring as a success, which is interesting and surprising and, and very nice. But when you're making things, you kind of have no idea what's going to catch on and what's not. But GeoJSON.io, I think it kind of hit this, this level of people who want to either look at geospatial data or create really simple geospatial data. And every other tool was either massively overkill or massively underkill. And there was just nothing in the middle. And GeoJSON.io kind of hit this it, it was this thing that did not really uh, exist or work or was popularly known before that. You know, I'm not going to claim that it's the first GeoJSON editor on the web. It's certainly not. It's probably the, the 10th. But I think it's the one that kind of solved a problem that people had. Can you give me an idea of how much traffic this website gets today? How many visitors? How many users? Do, do you know any of that information? The state of the site right now is that it's still... On Mapbox's GitHub, it's all the analytics are Mapbox's. It hasn't been touched in four years, so I can't really give you uh, current numbers on how many people are looking at it. Okay, so if I do a little bit of detective work here, it, it looks like it gets like 5,000 monthly visits. At least that's one estimate that I can see. But I'm sure it's significantly more than that. You mentioned a few things before that it just hit this moment, right? So it just worked. It, it resonated with, with people and it solved a problem that they were having. Why is that? Is this like, is this because Mapbox supported it? It was just amazing marketing and you had this huge sort of distribution channel? Or was it something else that, that made this work? Because it looks like a really simple tool. If you had said to me, like, this is going to be a wildly successful tool, a lot of people are going to use it, yeah, I would say, why? What, what is it about it? It looks ordinary. And, and this is not a critique at all. <laughs> but when you think about this now, well, why do you think it was uh, successful? Yeah, so... It's always been in this kind of odd state in which it was always a side project. And I think there are a few other people at Mapbox who contributed to it, but it was never an official Mapbox project. It was never really linked from the mapbox.com website. 
I mean, I think maybe some tutorials just kind of link it halfway through saying, hey, it's Judas.io. But I think the, the two things that were useful about it were, number one, it's just a web page. And when you hit the web page, you see a map and you can start using it immediately. That was kind of enabled by the fact that it was something that I did while I was at Mapbox. So um, it just has uh, unlimited Mapbox tiles for life on that website. And then the other thing I think was that it was, was not designed as a product. I think when I was even looking at the alternatives to GeoJSON.io when I was building it, it really seemed like there was a team with kind of intents and designers and they had done all this research and they were trying to figure out how this thing would, how their map editor would like serve a niche. And GeoJSON.io kind of had this luxury of just being extremely utilitarian. Like, doesn't look that nice. It doesn't market itself and it doesn't segue into any kind of business plan. And I think that was like really appealing to somebody who just wanted to kind of get in and get out when a lot of websites were trending to be the exact opposite in which you had to, you know, you have to create an account on news sites now. You have to form a relationship with websites. Whereas GeoJSON.io was just there kind of like, you know, somebody would use their, their notepad application on their computer. I think that's a really interesting observation that you're right. Almost every website you visit these days wants you to form a relationship with them. And they're asking you to care a lot about them, right? And all you really want to do is find the answer. I saw that you had the answer. Google suggested you as being the place to go for the answer to this thing. That's it. I just want the answer. And, and then I'm out of there again. And I think we see this with a lot of geospatial portals as well. So if they just gave you the data, just made it easy for you to get the data instead of injecting themselves into this or like forcing you into a relationship that you don't really want or need. You're just there to do the thing. Yeah. And I, I think we see this a lot with in almost sort of every kind of software is this, I think people, software developers might refer to it as dark patterns. Is that right? Like this idea where we trap people in, how can we get more out of them? How can we make them care more and use this more instead of just here's a tool it's here waiting for it for you when, when you need it. It won't come and interrupt you. It won't ask you for more. It's just here. If you want to use it, go for it. Yeah. So we've talked a bit about GeoJSON and why you think it was successful and what it does, that kind of thing. But you're building something else now. You're building something called placemark.io. So maybe you could tell us about that. And then I want to talk about some of these things, like what you've taken away from GeoJSON.io and how you're using that to navigate what to do with, with Placemark. So, but first, let, let's focus on Placemark. What is it? Sure. So yeah, Placemark is kind of, you could see it as a, as a successor or an extension to the idea of GeoJSON.io. The core is really trying to do a lot of the same things about uh, editing maps and really quickly being able to preview map data. And it's just trying to take that a lot further and kind of create something that both covers a lot of a lot of the ground that GeoJSON.io didn't, um, which I can I can go into, and also add basic things like collaboration and storage and sharing of maps. So some parts of GeoJSON.io, for example, you know it's it's not a it's not a GIS tool, and neither is Placemark. But GeoJSON.io does not work with multi-polygons or multi-points, which are relatively common features. You know, any, any island country is going to have some multi-polygons that represent it. And GeoJSON.io just simply doesn't really do that. 
But there's kind of this whole swath of features where I wanted to build this tool that just you can treat it like you would treat Figma or a drawing tool. And it just kind of generally has all of those patterns. So there are a lot of things which you can do, which you, know, you can lasso select a lot of features. You can bulk insert, bulk delete features. You can use an API to, to update them. You can you know edit a lot of properties that have types and change their types and rename properties. And all these things that kind of try to pull patterns from software that people love in other domains into the domain of maps, which the state of the art with tools in 2022 is not that different from the state of the art when I was building GeoJSON.io. So Placemark is trying to kind of create, a, create something that feels like a more full and polished experience and also adds collaboration on top of that. And is also something that I can continue to kind of update and maintain over time, uh, which is why Placemark is a small business uh, rather than a, than a side project off of my you know, former employee at Mapbox. Thank you very much for clarifying that for us, that it, that it is a business. And I want to talk way more about that later on. But, but first, I want to know about this collaboration. Can you help me understand what it means to make a collaborative tool? <laughs> And this sounds like a really broad question, but I guess what I'm wanting to know is what do the mechanics look like? What do you need to have in place for collaboration to work? I mean, on a technical side, I've, I've written about this a little bit on the Placemark blog, so I won't go into the absolutely gnarly details. But on the technical side, it really entails being able to kind of communicate small changes to say that one data set, one geospatial data set has version 10 of the mountain polygon and one has version 11 of the multi-polygon and send only that new version of that new feature from one person to another. And that's something that, you know, a lot of software has in the collaborative space, like tools like Figma or Google Docs all do this, but it's not really something that's that common in geospatial. And then the other thing on what that actually ends up being for people is number one, you accidentally build real-time sync. So there's no save button and it just automatically pushes your, your changes as you work. And then when multiple people are working, you have the ability to kind of follow another person's viewpoints. So you see all the avatars on the top right and you can click somebody's avatar. And if somebody is trying to give a presentation about the area that they've been working on, you can be on a video call, but also see and follow their map as they work. And then you see kind of their cursor and all of the polygons and geometries and attributes that they're editing, being edited in real time. And then when multiple people are editing, you can also kind of work on different parts of the map and just with a very, very minimum of conflicts, be able to modify the same map at the same time, which for, for really kind of high intensity mapping, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people in the OpenStreetMap world are, are really familiar with post-disaster mapping. That's been a humanitarian OpenStreetMap team has been working on that for years. So for those cases in which like everyone is kind of working on the same geospatial data set at the same time, I think that is a real step improvement versus having to split up the map by grids or even just not, you know, people having to take out the map and check it in and have incrementing versions in their file system and be sending around shape files over email. Okay, so, so I, I realized that you said you didn't want to go into all the details, but how, how do you do that? How do you minimize this conflict? What, what if I'm editing the exact same polygon that you are? 
what, what if five people are doing that? Who's right? How do you decide which is the, the correct version or, or which is the, the truth? <laughs> so it merges changes. So if you've used like Git or GitHub, really the, the approach there is that there are conflicts. So if you edit the same line of code or even the same area of code, Git will tell you these people edited the same thing at the same time, choose one of them, which is a great approach for that kind of tool. But when you're editing in real time, you kind of have to merge all that stuff. So right now, let's say that you know somebody was editing attributes of a feature while you were dragging the polygon at the same time, uh, which you know in IRL happens very, very infrequently. Placemark will just merge those two changes. So they'll get a version with new attributes and you'll get a version with a new geometry. And so there are kind of, there are rules behind the scene in terms of how things get merged and who wins. But given that everything is resolved in real time, it's kind of less likely that you ever come into that situation or you notice that that's happening. You mentioned Google Docs before. Like, why couldn't that just be another application in this suite of applications? So with Sheets and Docs and all that kind of stuff. Why couldn't a player like Google Sharp and, and do the same thing? Well, they could. I think this is, a, this is an eternal question for almost every startup. Um, is Google could just kind of enter and, and do that. But I think the, the odd thing right now is that the state of the art for collaboration, um, I mean, Google Docs is tremendously successful, but you know, tools like Figma are, I would say, kind of a step beyond what Google is doing in terms of collaboration technology, not only because they, they kind of use the new stuff, so to speak, technologically, but they're also allowing collaboration on kind of more complex things. So a drawing versus uh, a piece of text. And so, yeah, I, I, I think the, the reason why these two concepts have not really been merged that much before, like geospatial and collaboration, uh, just to, I guess, to go back to a, to a geospatial meme, like geo is not necessarily like special, but it is hard in some unexpected ways, I would say. Like maps are this combination of a drawing and a database to the extent that a lot of kind of off the shelf tools, like even the, even the engine that Google Docs uses wouldn't necessarily work. So, so we're entering the, this world of cloud native geospatial and the idea being that we'll be able to stream data. So people will just be able to put a file, a, a blob somewhere on a server. We'll be able to connect to that through a URL and stream data into the application. So applications like yours, clients like yours, at least this is the way I understand it, will be able to sort of gather all this information together. They'll be able to do something in the client, but the, the data sources themselves will be distributed. Will your application work like this? I mean, will, will all these sort of improvements and development that we're seeing in cloud-native geospatial, will that have any sort of bearing influence on what you're building today? It'll have a certain bearing. Yeah, I've been thinking about this question a lot because there are so many new formats coming to the geospatial and especially the ones that are kind of like build as cloud native. And a lot of those are, are really cool and really innovative. And this is not necessarily a critique, but a lot of innovation on that side has been working on static data. So a lot of these formats in which you can kind of stream the whole data set and it's really efficient to read it, they are not really writable. You can't do partial updates to them. And there's a lot of usability in that for GIS processing of those data sets. And those will probably be things that 
you know, GeoJSON can be converted to, but it's, it's kind of tricky to pencil out how a lot of that stuff connects to, to data that's writable to, to editing interfaces. And so that's, you know, that's certainly something that I'm, I'm kind of like looking at and waiting for some of these, uh, some of these formats to, to stabilize. And I'm also just like really interested to see whether there are any that eventually become kind of more useful for, for this use case. Thank you very much for that. I really appreciate that. I've often thought about that as well. I've heard people mention that it, was, it might be possible to write to some of these cloud native formats, but then it didn't seem to be like what people were pushing for. It sounds very much like the focus is on the, this read-only format, taking the, the burden off the, the data hosters or the people that are going to be hosting these massive data sets by saying, you don't need to run a SQL server in the background to host these things. So you can just put it on relatively cheap blob storage and maybe put a stack interface in front of it, make it searchable, and then stream it from there. But you know, re- reducing the burden by making it write-only and streamable. At least that was my understanding. So I appreciate you sort of walking us through your thoughts around that in, in terms of placemark. Right at the start, we were talking about your, that, this other tool that you've built, geogison.io. And I think one of the things you, you mentioned was that it was one of the reasons it was successful was because it didn't sound like you overthought it. You just did the thing. You made a tool that worked. It, didn't, it wasn't trying to trick you into anything else. It wasn't trying to be, create this relationship with you. It was just here, I'm here. If you want to use me to do this thing, great, do that, please. How are you going to avoid not making that mistake of overthinking things with, with, you, with your new venture here, with, with Placemark? You also mentioned this is a business. So at some stage, you're going to have to make money off this. How, how do you think about Balancing functionality with simplicity, not overthinking things, making a tool that, that is just usable for people and running a business. Yeah. I mean, to, to kind of more fully draw that contrast, Geodison.io had no, it was not like a business and it also was not an official project, which meant that it was very you know, straightforward, but it's also abandoned. And uh, you know, it's it's kind of slowly disintegrating. It doesn't actually use HPS even, so you can't do a lot of things with it. And I don't think that there's really a future in which it's going to be maintained in any way. I'm sure that somebody's going to swoop in and fork it as soon as I say that and say, oh, it's, you know, geojsonio 2 which, you know, great, go for it. But people kind of need, you know, in order for something to be like a, a living project, it kind of needs that ecosystem of of somebody working on it. And given, you know, how the how the web works and how geo works, you can't just kind of drop code and it work forever. And so like the idea that Placemark is a business is really intertwined with the idea that I want to continue working on it for the long term and I want to continue making it better. And you know, even though in my heart of hearts I still still believe in open source, there wasn't really a scenario in which it could be fully open source and, you know, something that I would work on long-term, you know, I'm unfortunately not, you know, a Renaissance prince or anything like that. And I also live in America, which is kind of more like a Mad Max situation than you can, than other countries, I guess. I couldn't get a grant from the U.S. government for anything. So that's, you know, that's, that's the reason why Placemark is a business. It's a business because I want to keep working on it and like keep making it better, which so far has been working out great. It's, it's trying to be a very traditional business and it's generating a little bit of revenue. And every week I put out change logs and send people what's updated and what's fixed. But to get back to the question of kind of how to, you know, how to not make it fluffy, 
I think partly me as a person and as an engineer, I kind of have a style and a lot of habits. And a lot of those habits are pretty well established now. And a lot of those habits are very just kind of utilitarian, maybe to a fault. You know, I have occasionally asked a designer or two to look at Placemark and, you know, the feedback is always just like, it's a, you know, it's a little bit harsh. The feedback is nice. They're saying that Placemark is, is harsh. You know, it's, it looks utilitarian, but partly it is that the form of business that Placemark is right now is really only incentivized by paying users using the tool. And I've, I've thought about this a lot because I think that's kind of rare. You know, I've worked at a lot of startups. A lot of those startups, they raised collectively, the places that I've worked at is, have raised over $200 million, maybe more. I don't know what the count is. But like even, even at that point where you've raised a lot of money and you have like a free plan and you have marketing and you have, you know, other companies that are integrating with you, you have all of these additional stakeholders and all these additional goals. You want something to look nice in a demo and you want to appeal to users who might not be your main users. You have all these things that kind of like incentivize you to, to just build something that seems nice. But to just try to build a, an old-fashioned business like we used to do in the 1800s, I assume, gives you this completely different and, at least at this point, much simpler set of priorities. So, you know, it, I don't wake up and think about some kind of like overarching, you know, is placemark next gen enough goal. <laughs> I'm, I'm waking up and thinking about, uh, you know, is a... Uh, can I increase the, the limit of data from 10 to 100 megabytes? Or can I make the, the table sortable? It's very much like a meat and potatoes focused tool. And I would say that a lot of the things that I've worked on in the past have been meat and potatoes focused focus tools. And yeah, that's, that's kind of the, the work that I wouldn't say that I enjoy, but I think that's the work that's important to users. It's super important to understand what people are going to pay for. And I think that would be kind of, that simplicity would be kind of nice, right? Not having to think about all this, like, am I conforming to the right sort of marketing ideals right now? It doesn't matter because that's not paying the bills. What's paying the bills is the people like it enough, get enough value out of it, that they want to give you money for it each month. Is this your first business or have you run other businesses before? This is my first business. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've done a little bit of freelancing through the years. But this is the first time that I've actually, uh, you know, registered a business with the government and uh, started operating with one. What was it like to make that first dollar, to have your first subscriber? <laughs> so I launched it, let's see, I guess almost a month ago. It's still very surreal. I like to say that, like, the, the more that I work on Placemark and just answer emails and do the work, the better that I feel about it. And the more that I'm removed from it and I'm thinking about it in the macro, just the more nervous I feel. So it's one of those things where like, as long as I kind of stay in the flow, it kind of feels nice. But if you think about like the larger picture, I, I think what I'm trying to do currently, the path that I've set up is, is a relatively difficult one. And it's, uh, yeah, it's hard. Like I, I, you know, I've talked to some bootstrapper friends and they, uh, saying, you know, here's where I'm at. Like, here's, here's how many, how many users and how much revenue it's making. And they're like, oh, this is great. Like, that's, that's great for like, the, you know, first month. But then, you know, you look at pre-revenue startups that have raised $10 million and are hiring people. And uh, I'm a very naturally competitive person. And it's the, 
yardstick that you use to measure yourself can vary so tremendously from the morning to the to the midday sometimes. Yeah, yeah, you've got to be careful looking around too much sometimes in the comparisons. It's really tempting to make comparisons which are just completely unrealistic, right? So I've got, I've got a couple of questions. I'm going to try and pack them in, into, into one, so you'll have to forgive me that. Firstly, I, I want to know why now? Why is now the right time to start this business? What, what was the, the catalyst for this? And maybe you could answer this question in a follow-on. Why this kind of business? You, you talked about being a freelancer before. You're clearly brilliant based on the work that you've done in the past. Why not be a consultant and sell services? So two questions here. Why now? Why is the right time? And why is this business the right one for you? Yeah. So let's see. Why now is it's, you know, it's a combination of a lot of factors, personal, professional. And it's also the fact that I spent a long time at Mapbox and I was the first or second employee at, at two startups after that. And I felt, and I think I've kind of validated this feeling that a lot of the things that shock people when they found startups or the things which are just like, oh no, this is insane. This is chaos. That's just been kind of my normal job for, for a decade. So I felt that I was at a bit of an advantage in that way. And also, you know, having been so close to startups that were so early in their path, you know, I find that stuff exciting. And I also just really wanted to see whether I could, you know, whether I could build something that had lasting value and that I would really enjoy working on every day. In a pathetic way, I just really, you know, I get a kick out of out of making things like and and across the board, you know, like I I enjoy writing documentation and, you know, building the website and responding to emails to some extent, you know, like emails, obviously, once I get more than five, it's it's chaos. But like, I, you know, I I love the, the building of product stuff. I totally lucked into working at a product company out of out of college. And after freelancing, like I, I really enjoyed freelancing still. Um, and I had really, really nice clients, but I still had this kind of hunger to work on something that was, that was building toward, you know, a tool that people could just kind of continue using. And then to have something where I felt like I had a little bit more, you know, control over my destiny, so to speak. I think what I got out of what you said anyway, was like, you enjoy building things. You enjoy building something. And it sounds like you just want ownership of something. I want to make this thing here. I don't want to conform to what you want to make. I don't want to work on your dream. I want to work on my dream. At least that's what I heard you say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's basically the gist. Yeah, I do. I love, love making things. And especially like working on applications, just feeling like you have the whole thing in your head and that you can, you can make things better. Is, it's a really nice feeling sometimes. Yeah, making things better. Being, that feeling where you like, like, this is better than what it was. I did something today. I made a difference. I love that. You talked about risk before. No, you talked about excitement, being excited about something. And for me, like a lot of times we can replace, if you had a sentence with exciting in it, you could replace that with risky and it would probably still make sense. <laughs> How much risk is involved in, in this for you? Or do you even see it as being a risky thing to do to, to start this business? Yeah. So I think Placemark is kind of an outlier in businesses. So my entire career has been extremely risky. I joined a, at that point, 10 person startup right out of college, you know, fired myself from that startup, worked at another one that was, that hadn't raised any money and then worked at one that had only a seed round and then worked at one that was pre-seed. 
And thankfully, at no point I was going completely without a salary. But, you know, I've paid for my health insurance um, the majority of my adult life, which is horrible. And pretty much at, at any point in those in that decade plus salaried career, I could have been, you know, the company, any company that I worked for could have could have gone kaput. So that stuff, I guess I just I kind of look at the tech industry and I think that there's a lot of surplus that, you know, people can have a fancy job, they can quit their job and have another fancy job on Monday. And that's really nice. And you can either max that out by saying, oh, I'm going to max out fancy jobs and, you know, go to work for Netflix and make $500,000 a year. Or you can take the difference between that really fancy job and optimize for something else. And that's at least how I kind of conceptualize what I've been doing. Like I take a little bit more risk because in the global conception of risk, you know, there are actually people who are living paycheck to paycheck and their jobs have actual risk to their their bodies. And, you know, this is not, I'm not doing deep sea fishing here. It's just a startup. And then on the other side, like, you know, Placemark at this point is an extremely lean company. The sunk cost for me working on a year of it, a year plus now, I guess a year and a half, I could probably run the numbers and say like, oh, Tom, you've, you've, you know, you've burned so-and-so percent of your life and you could have made X working at tech. But right now it's not the kind of like, rocket ship, you have to raise another round or you're going to go to put, I've kept costs low. And I think it's like, actually, <laughs> I saying this will totally jinx it. And I'm perpetually a little bit nervous about how these things go. But like, if I continue to work on it, and people continue to sign up for it, it'll be a sustainable business within a reasonable amount of time in the probably year or so timeline. And <laughs> I don't know, like, that is, it's, it's more risky in some ways than just taking a lot of money in venture capital funding, but it's also less risky in a lot of ways that I think are kind of like more of a slow burn thing. Like I've kind of, I've kind of tried to work on place marks so that it, so that a lot of options are open in the future rather than the only option being in two years, you have to raise $10 million and uh, pray that the macroeconomic environment is better. I really relate to what you said about risk. And I think what you're talking about is the difference between real risk. You know, you said this is not deep sea fishing. That that would be a real risk, right? There's a reason why there's that TV show, you know, Dangerous Jobs or something like that. These are risky businesses. These are risky occupations. You're not doing that. And that difference between real risk and imagined risk, I think is what holds a lot of people back from executing on their ideas. So I'm running a business too. Mapscaping is a media company. And when I think about the real risk involved, like the worst case scenario, is I invest a bit of time, I learn a bunch of stuff, and if it doesn't work, if I can't make it sustainable, then I can't make it sustainable. But I can see a bunch of other options that will open up for me, just based on having been in the game and tried different things. And I think, well, if that's the worst case scenario, then it's, it's not so bad. One, one thing I will say, though, about running a business, being in a similar situation to you, so I'm starting, you're starting, is that I find it really lonely. I find it lonely because most people aren't starting businesses. Most people aren't going through what I'm going through, are thinking in the way that I'm thinking. I, I wonder if you find it lonely as well. All right, my friend Jesse, if you're listening, start your business already. I need more friends who are doing this. Yeah, so I find certain parts of it lonely, but there's kind of a difference between the, the work itself, which I think I maybe am just kind of an outlier in terms of personalities. I can just code for, you know, a week and not talk to anyone about it and be fine. 
And like, I could probably continue doing that for quite a while. But it has been really, really important to, to chat every once in a while with just kind of outside people about the, you know, the high level of it, like what it's like to, to start a business. And that is tricky because like still even a lot of the people that I talk to there, you know, they're working at large companies. It's not that many people who are working on bootstrap stuff or who are, who are founding their own company. Yeah. And yeah, I wish that there were more people doing it just like you. And I think if I, if I was more proactive there, there are like communities for that and there's indie hackers and all that stuff. But I, I think it's a reasonable decision for most people not, not to do this. It is a little bit of a leap. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree. I don't think it's for everyone at all. But then again, I don't think anything's for everyone. <laughs> yeah. So, so that, this fits perfectly in my worldview. I wanted to ask a question about marketing. And my question was, how do you think about marketing? Because it's one thing to make a tool or do anything, actually, to have an idea. It's a whole other thing to execute on that idea. So most of the people have already dropped off because most people don't execute on their ideas. And then it's a whole other thing, in my mind at least, is to market that idea, to stand behind it, to look someone in the eye and say, here, I made this, will you give me money for it? And to attract people to your thing. How do you think about that? How do you think about marketing Placemark, the thing that you're working on, your business? So I think two things kind of come to mind here. The first is that I try to, my natural, my natural state is to be very honest and straightforward in real life. And I try to do that on the internet as well. And I really want something, you know, anything that I write from my Twitter, my blog, from the Placemark Twitter, the Placemark blog, Placemark website, I want it to be kind of free of jargon and also just like real. There are documentation pages on Placemark which say Placemark doesn't do this very well. Placemark doesn't support this file format and it isn't ready for this use case. And there are others that obviously say, you know, it's great for X, Y, and Z. But I think there's kind of a differentiator, I hope. I, I think this has been the case in the past in which like if somebody really feels like there is a human behind the computer, if there's somebody who's really working on the thing, I think people appreciate that. And I, you know, I appreciate that in a lot of products that I use in which you can really tell that there is a team behind it. And, you know, if you send an email, you get a response that is not jargon. You know, when they announce things like, you know, if Placemark uh, does X, Y, and Z, uh, like it's not going to be, you'll be able to understand the press release, you know? And I think we've kind of gone to the exact opposite in some ways. Like I've read press releases and I'm just like, is somebody acquiring somebody else or like releasing a product? Like I read this whole thing and I just don't get it. So like kind of the, the first like tent pole, I would say, is just like having some kind of authenticity, which is like real authenticity and not like fake authenticity. And then the other thing is just kind of being useful. So like not only is like the product of Placemark trying to be useful. But when I'm writing stuff for the website, I really want to write stuff that I'm sure that there are some blog posts that are just going to be purely about Placemark. But if I'm writing, you know, documentation or marketing, I am trying to write it so that somebody can have an understanding and it actually conveys information. And it's actually just in and of itself, something that you would like to read. And that's kind of, I guess my, my reference point here is my, my blog, macwrite.com. I have never attempted to optimize it for SEO and it has very high SEO. And I think that's just because like this whole time, I've never been trying to like game a thing. I've just been trying to write something useful. 
And so it breaks all these rules. It has like lots of links out, which I guess you're not supposed to do. But like, if you write the article that's actually useful for somebody using GeoJSON and Google routes somebody to that article, that's kind of, that's what's supposed to happen. Google is not supposed to route somebody to the person who paid the SEO specialist the most. And like, there are companies for which their content is so good that I read it, even though I don't like use the product. You know, their Oxide Computer is a good example of this. Um, it's this team working on like rack servers, which I will, you know, I'm never going to buy a rack server, but they, they just like talk about it with such genuine interest that like, it's still, it's still kind of useful. So I'm just trying to like, you know, create that kind of content. That's both like, that is just real. That's something that I would want to, that I would want to read myself. I think a lot of people forget that, you know, when we're doing things, when we're doing marketing, I think the temptation is for, for these quick fixes to try and get you know, more attention than we actually deserve, as opposed to, like you said, being human, being useful. What would I want to read? What would people like us want to know? That kind of thing. I feel like a lot of the content I read online, it's, uh, it's crap. Like <laughs> it's written for a machine. It's not written for a human. And I'm sure they're doing that because it's going to work in the short term. But I think if you're building something for the long term, I don't think it's a great approach. Yeah. And the strategy probably has to change over time. If Placemark is selling to companies, unfortunately, people, the terrible, terrible thing with like sales and business in general is that salespeople exist because their inverse exists at other companies. And the solutions tab of web pages that explains everything in like extremely high level language where it's like, this is a solution to do X and revolutionize your company. There is a consumer to that. It's probably like the CEO, maybe the CTO, maybe the VP of engineering who's like really jazzed about that technology and just kind of wants, I guess you would call it the vibes of what they're offering. <laughs> you know, there, there is a place for that kind of stuff once you're selling to large organizations and the people at the top of large organizations. But if you're selling to individual people who are actually going to use the product, you should speak as if you're talking to individual people who are going to use the product, people who, you know, just want to make maps. I think you're right. But I, I, would, I would argue that it's the company is going to pay. If you're selling to a business, for example, it's the company that's going to sign the check. It's the company that's going to give you money. But it's a person, it's a human at the end of the day, which is going to say, I like this or I don't like this. We should, or it's going to make the decision. I think at some level, I want to believe that humans writing things, making things for other humans is going to win the day. Yeah, me too. I, I, hope, I hope that that's the case as well. <laughs> hey, Tom, I think, I think we should wrap this up here. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk with me. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate your openness and your honesty. It was amazing to hear about the things that you're working on, why you're working on them, and how it's going. I, I re really enjoyed that. But I loved hearing about why you decided to start a business, the, your thought process around the, the kind of business you wanted to make. In that side of it, like this is a huge decision, and I, I really appreciate you just giving us a little insight into to what it is that you're working on and how you're doing it, and where you want it to go in the future. So thanks very much for that. Where is it that people can go if they want to reach out to you? If they want to connect with you, ask more questions, or perhaps try out Placemark for themselves. So Placemark is placemark.io, and you can either go to my website, which is macright m a c w r i g h t dot com, or my Twitter is tmcw and yeah if you if you google all those things hopefully you'll find them 
Yeah, and my contact info is all over the Placemark site. I am I am so into receiving feedback. Tom, thanks very much for your time. It's been awesome. Cheers. Yeah, thank you so much. So I really hope you enjoyed that episode with Tom McWright. As usual, there'll be links in the show notes of this episode to where you can reach out to Tom, where you can catch up with him, where you can follow along with uh, placemark.io, and of course, where you can try it out for yourself. If you've enjoyed this podcast episode, or indeed any of the episodes I've published over the last four years, I, I would really appreciate your support. There's a couple of different ways you can support. Firstly, sharing it with a friend, telling someone about it, helping me spread the word would be massive. That'd be huge. I'd really appreciate that. But I also need some financial support. I need a way of paying the bills, of making this podcast sustainable. So there's a couple of different options here. You could become a Patreon. You could support the website. So there's an option to sponsor the Mapscaping website or perhaps become a sponsor of the podcast episode itself. If, if this is something that you're interested in, if you're interested in helping out and supporting this podcast and my work, go along to mapscaping.com. You'll find some more details there. Or just reach out to me. You can catch me on social media at, at Mapscaping on Twitter, or send an email to info at mapscaping.com. I would love to hear from you. Okay, thanks very much for listening in again this week. Really appreciate it. I'll be back again next week with another episode. I, I hope that you'll take the time to join me then. We'll talk soon. Bye.